Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. You're listening to episode 66, Bitter Pill. Auburn is a city sandwiched between two big cities in Washington state, Seattle to the north and Tacoma to the south. Auburn's known as a hard-working town that's charming and rural, with blue-collar roots. The Boeing manufacturing plant in Auburn is the largest airplane parts plant in the world. And Boeing is one of the major employers of the city and has been since the mid-1960s. But our story takes place in the summer of 1986, a time when Run DMC's Walk This Way, Madonna's Papa Don't Preach, and Janet Jackson's When I Think of You all were hits on local radio stations' Top 40 rotation. 40-year-old Sue Snow and her 43-year-old husband, Paul Webking, were both transplants from other places. The couple had met eight years earlier and had built a life together in Auburn, a city they called home. And to say opposites attract, well, that was Sue and Paul's relationship. She was a manager at a bank, and he was a long-haul trucker. Paul would be described by some as opinionated and demanding, whereas Sue was known for her softer touch. She would be described as a people pleaser, who was well-liked, some would say especially by her male customers at the bank. But really, she just had a way of making people feel good. And she was whip-smart. And all of these traits were what got her noticed at the bank. And it wasn't long before she was moving up the corporate ladder, with her tailored suits and bubbly personality, which is why she and Paul made strange bedfellows. He was decidedly not a people-pleaser. But anyone who really knew Sue and Paul deeply understood their attraction to each other. Because around Paul, Sue could be herself. She could let her hair down because she felt free to take off the mask and Beneath wasn't always a bubbly personality. And Paul, he loved Sue when she was off and on. He loved her outlook on life and her ability to hold everything together. And of course, they were compatible in other ways. They were both very attracted to one another. And when it came to love, both Paul and Sue had been around the block more than once. Sue had been married twice before Paul, her first husband when she was very young. She'd gotten pregnant at 16 and had a baby girl. Later, she would remarry and have another daughter, Haley. Paul had three marriages under his belt, with as many divorces. By 1981, Paul had officially moved in with Sue and her 10-year-old daughter, Haley. The pair had become one of those couples that had to be together. When it was good, it was great. When it wasn't so hot as it would become, their relationship would morph into this ragged, desperate kind of love. Because in February of 1985, Paul would admit to Sue that he'd had an affair. At first, he denied it. When Sue came at him with the phone bill, remember, this was before cell phones, so you had to pay for long-distance calls. And Sue was like, here's the phone bill. Who are you calling? Over and over in California. Paul was actually originally from California, and as a long-haul trucker, that was a part of his route, driving along the I-5 corridor from Washington to San Francisco to Los Angeles. Now, at first... Paul denied the affair, but he'd finally admit it, saying it was only a one-time thing with an old high school girlfriend, that it would never happen again. 
Paul's affair enraged Sue. She'd become obsessed with what he'd done. She really wanted to hate his guts. She wanted to break it off, but she didn't. She loved him. And he'd been able to convince her that it didn't mean anything to him. And she so desperately wanted to believe that. But there was that lack of trust, especially when he took trips to California for work. It would dredge it all up to the surface again. Which is why Sue and Paul agreed to go to couples therapy. And it worked. They were able to emotionally get past it. And then they surprised everybody. When they came back from a trip to Lake Tahoe, announcing that they'd gotten married on Thanksgiving Day, 1985. As for the other woman, Mary, when she found out about the marriage, she was bitter. And she called Paul a few weeks later. Now, before they'd gotten married, Sue had already had it out with Mary over the phone, basically had a screaming match and called her every name in the book. And this time when Mary called to speak with Paul, Sue basically told Paul, hey, tell her never to call again. And Sue would follow up by sending a nasty letter to Mary, which she would later say she regretted. But by the summer of 1986, things had settled down and she had forgiven him for the affair. Life was good. The morning of June 11th, Sue's daughter, 15-year-old Haley, woke up for school. It was a Wednesday, and like clockwork, she headed for the shower in the bathroom off the upstairs hallway. Haley had been in the shower for a few minutes when her mom came in for a quick chat. They had that kind of close, trusting relationship where they pretty much talked about everything. Haley popped her head out to talk to her mom, who stood there, wearing her purple robe with a cup of coffee in her hand. That morning, they chatted about Sue's older daughter, who'd visited the night before with her friend, it had been a great evening. Paul had just returned from that long-haul trip to California. They'd had a barbecue and then enjoyed a favorite family pastime of relaxing in their hot tub. Before Sue left her daughter that morning to finish her shower, she leaned in, giving her a quick peck and saying, I love you, before she left to get ready herself. Haley was still in the bathroom when she heard a thud. She paused, listened for more, but dismissed the noise as nothing. But as Haley was getting dressed, she continued to hear the water running in her mother's bathroom. And it was strange because the faucet had been going for like five minutes, which Haley knew wasn't normal. So she rushed to her mother's bathroom and found her mom lying on the floor, her face bright red, and her usual warm hazel eyes were open and unblinking, just staring at the ceiling. Haley shut off the water, which was threatening to spill over to the floor and the plugged-in curling iron. Then she dropped to her knees, gently placing her hands on her mom's shoulders, crying, Mommy? Mommy, talk to me! But Sue didn't respond. She just continued to stare at the ceiling, without blinking. It was like she was there physically, but everything that made up her mom, her warmth, her smile, her care, her love, was gone. Haley ran to the house phone and dialed Karen, a family friend who lived down the street. She described what was going on with her mom, and Karen told her to call 911 immediately. It was 6.43 a.m. Medical operator for one. Um, um, I have a problem. What's the matter? Um, I think my mother fell while I was in the shower, and, and she was breathing and everything, but something's wrong with her. Okay, what's your address? 1404 N Street. And like Nora? Um, yeah. Northeast? Um, N Street, Northeast. Okay, what's your phone number there? 833. 
to you. Um, is she able to talk to you, Seth? I don't know. It's, it's like she's sleeping with her eyes open. Okay, is she able to talk to you at all? She's not talking. Okay, did you try to get her to talk to you? Well, I just said, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. Okay, and did she talk to you at all? No. Okay, hold on for just a minute. Okay. Is she in the bathtub or the shower? Well, she's laying in the bathtub. I mean, she's laying in the bathroom and, like, her head is in the shower. Okay, hold on. I want you to go back to her and see if you can get her to talk to you or make sure that she's breathing normally and come back and tell me what she's doing, okay? Okay, hold on. Haley was relieved to find a pulse, but was terrified when her mother inhaled an agonizing breath, then exhaled a labored wheeze, followed by shallow breaths. But it's kind of weird. Okay, is she able to talk to you yet? She didn't. She didn't talk. Okay, did she move at all or do anything? She just took a deep breath. She did take a deep breath. Uh huh. Okay. I want you to make sure that she's breathing normally, though. How is her coloring? Um, hold on a sec, okay? Okay, Trent, can you hear me? Yeah. Shake her hand. See if she'll talk to you. Tell her to talk to you. Okay. See if she will, and come back and tell me. Okay, hold on. From the time that Sue had come into the bathroom to chat with her daughter until the time that Haley had placed that 911 call, it had been roughly 20 minutes. Medics and fire would arrive at 6.47. By then, Karen had already arrived at the house, and she flung open the door, saying, Come quickly, she's upstairs. Medics found Sue unresponsive on the bathroom floor. Her arms were at her side. Her neck was resting on the sill of the shower stall, with her head inside the shower. Her pupils were dilated, fixed, and non-reactive to light, and her neck veins were distended. Immediately, the medic felt her head for signs of trauma, just based on the position of her neck and head inside the shower. They'd been told that she'd fallen. Was it possible that she'd sustained a head injury? But the first responder couldn't find any head wounds. Sue was moved to the bedroom, and Haley would be asked if her mother had any health conditions, and she could only say that her mom had a stressful job. That was it. They would affix an oxygen mask to Sue's face, 
and when her blood pressure dropped, they started CPR until it came back up. But other than that, they had no idea what was going on with her. The only thing they knew for sure, it wasn't good. She needed to be airlifted to Harborview, which is the best trauma center in the state, if she had any chance of surviving whatever had happened to her. The emergency doctor on duty was told that a comatose patient with a suspected hemorrhage would be arriving at the ER at 7.45 a.m. Meantime, Karen had rushed Haley to Harborview in Seattle, roughly 30 miles away. Not long after, Paul would be driven to the hospital by his boss. And then Paul and Haley agonized in the waiting room. The doctor would come out and ask what Sue had to eat or drink. Based on her symptoms, he suspected some kind of toxic exposure. The only thing Paul could come up with was extra strength Excedrin. He knew that it was Sue's routine to take some in the morning for her chronic migraines. The doctor went away again, and not long after, at roughly 10 a.m., he would come back out to the waiting room and tell Haley that her mother, Sue, was brain dead. Staff would move her to a smaller room in the hospital where it was quiet, a place for the family to say their last goodbyes. At this point, the only thing keeping vibrant, loving, outgoing Sue alive was life support. The doctor watched as Paul sat tearfully next to his wife, speaking to her gently. He would do this for quite some time, 45 minutes. But at some point, he went to the doctor saying, Doc, can I ask you a stupid question? The doctor replied, sure. And he said, is there any chance that this could be due to cyanide poisoning? To which the doctor replied, I don't know. What the doctor had to know was that when ingested by a human, cyanide is fast acting. It would take about 10 minutes for an Excedrin capsule to dissolve. And then, if it was laced with cyanide, it would be free to make its way through the bloodstream, wreaking havoc in the body. By 11 a.m., hospital staff would ask Sue's family the impossible question that only they could answer. Would they authorize removing Sue from life support? It had all happened so fast. It's hard to fathom what Haley was going through. The 15-year-old who still called Sue mommy how the last words her mommy had ever spoken to her were, I love you, just minutes before she collapsed. Now, roughly six hours later, her mother had been pronounced dead at 12.10 p.m. An autopsy would be performed on Sue the next day, the 12th. And as soon as the medical examiner opened up the body, and instantly, the technician assisting smelled a strong odor of bitter almonds. And she said to the M.E., that's the telltale sign of cyanide poisoning. She would go on to say, you don't easily forget what that smells like. However, the ME wasn't convinced, but she would take blood samples. And for now, she would rule Sue's death as undetermined, saying, unless the toxicology reports said differently, she would attribute Sue's death as possibly related to cardiac arrhythmia. Four days later, the lab report came back. There was no doubt that Sue had died from a lethal dose of cyanide poisoning, prompting that ME to reach out to the Auburn Police Department. Unless the victim had taken her own life, this was a homicide. Detectives immediately called Paul and broke the news. He agreed to let them search the house and take the suspected extra-strength Excedrin capsules that bottle would be turned over to the FDA for testing. Paul and Haley were asked to come down to the station to give a statement. And it wasn't like Paul to sugarcoat anything. 
including his relationship with Sue. He said, hey, we've lived together for the last five years, that they'd had a rough patch in their relationship in February of 1985 after he admitted having an affair with an ex-girlfriend in California. But they went to couples counseling and were able to move past the affair. And they'd gotten married on Thanksgiving in 1985. He would also give them his timeline. How three days before Sue had died, he'd left for a scheduled long-haul trip to California. How before he'd left, he'd taken two extra-strength Excedrin from the kitchen cabinet. And at the time, he remembered saying, hey, Sue, we're getting low. And she was like, yep, it's on my shopping list. Paul would return home from his trip the following Tuesday night at around 4. And then they had that wonderful family barbecue with Sue's older daughter and her friend. Then the next morning, that Wednesday, before Sue collapsed in the bathroom, he'd already been out the door before she even woke up. He'd left the house at around 5.30 that morning after he'd taken two extra-strength Excedrin capsules from a fresh bottle in the kitchen cabinet, which he assumed that Sue had placed in its usual spot. Because Sue had already taken the lid off and removed the cotton that she had thrown both away before putting the bottle back in the cupboard, which was her practice, the thing is, Sue ran a really tight ship. The house was immaculate. She liked things just so, even down to the readiness of the excedrins that she and Paul both consumed regularly. She didn't even like to fuss with the lid or the cotton, so she always threw them both away. And it is from this lidless bottle, according to Paul, that he'd taken two capsules, swallowed them, and then went off to work. Paul would explain to investigators that he and Sue took two excedrins nearly every morning for the caffeine. That based on that, he assumed that she had taken the Excedrins, but he hadn't seen her take them. And because nobody was awake before he left work, nobody saw him taking his two capsules. Detectives listened to Paul's statement with a side-eye skepticism. Obviously, the person closest to the victim is a suspect, just out of the gate. Now they were hearing about an affair. They'd been told from the doctor working on Sue that Paul had asked him if his wife could have died from cyanide poisoning, specifically. Remember, he'd also told that ER doctor that Sue took Excedrin daily for her chronic migraines. Now he was saying she took them regularly for the caffeine. That same day, investigators were advised by the FDA that the extra-strength Excedrin capsules that were taken from Sue's home with the lot number 5H102 had tested positive for cyanide, that there were 60 pills in the bottle, and that there were only 56 remaining which would track, according to Paul, who had said that he'd taken two that morning and his wife had most likely taken two as well. But it was more than a little suspicious. Paul takes two capsules from that fresh bottle and nothing happens. Sue takes two, and she dies. He was either super lucky, or this had nothing to do with luck, and that he had poisoned his wife, and that his motive was the oldest in the book. He was having an affair, and there was a life insurance policy of $125,000. The city of Auburn would declare a state of emergency, which authorized police officers to seize all capsules in the city to protect the public. These bottles would be turned over to the FDA for testing. The public was advised to look for the manufacturer's lot 5H102, because this particular lot may contain potentially lethal quantities of cyanide poisoning. Authorities knew the recall would cause a panic. But what choice did they have? They didn't have any idea how far-reaching the poison was or if it was just an isolated case and that somebody close to Sue had murdered her. Because by this time, as news of Sue's death spread and the circumstances behind it, that she'd been murdered, 
people were coming out of the woodwork with something to say. How Sue and Paul had made enemies. When she was a board member of a homeowner's association, a witness would come forward alleging that, based on his interactions with Paul at meetings, he had determined that Paul was capable of physical violence if he was challenged, that he was manipulative and absolutely capable of murdering his wife. And Sue, six months before she died, had turned in a man for embezzlement. And a couple years before that, an anonymous letter had arrived at Sue's branch, addressed to her, that said, to the whore of the Puget Sound Bank. But investigators were also interviewing people who said that Paul and Sue were very much in love. And once the cyanide had been identified in Sue's bottle of Excedrin, the FBI were on the case. Here's Mark Nichols, who at the time of this interview was Seattle's assistant chief of the FBI. Mark Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, assistant special agent in charge for FBI Seattle. They had jurisdiction over consumer product tampering as a result of the Chicago Tylenol murders that had happened four years before. A report from Fox 32 Chicago. Seven people have now died. A health official said, we're dealing with Russian roulette. All the bottles of extra-strength capsules were removed Friday as part of the nationwide recall. Do not take any time at all until further notice. Police are looking for disgruntled employees, angry customers, anybody with a grudge against the stores or Tylenol. For those unfamiliar with the case, in September-October of 1982, a series of poisoning deaths would cause widespread hysteria after seven people died in Chicago after they'd taken Tylenol capsules laced with potassium cyanide. I would speak with Mark Nichols about the Chicago Tylenol case. Even though Mark was just a kid in 1982, and he didn't live in Chicago, like most people young and old during that time, those murders felt too close to home wherever you lived. No, I, I remember in 1982, specifically those Tylenol cases. I mean, the whole world was freaked out about that. So I, I, I truly remember that. Um, if you're of a certain age, you're going to remember that Tylenol case. It was everywhere. Right. Why was it such a huge case for people who aren't aware that people could just put poison in bottles, you know, without, you know, with no tamper sealer? What, what was it about that case that really freaked people out? You know, I would say uh, even at my age in 1982, ju- just the thought of uh, it just would paralyze it paralyzed the nation because you didn't know if you were grabbing something off a shelf, if it had been tampered with or not. And so everyone was was very nervous about taking any kind of uh, pain relief medication or other medications. And sadly, deaths ensued as a result of that of those tragic of that tragic incident. And, and then, of course, that really led to the, the very all the tampering uh, regulations and laws and rules, and so now consumers are much more comforted when they go to the store. Uh, it, it's much much more difficult to potentially tamper with a product, and that was born out of that um, tragic event of, of eighty in, in the eighties. In reaction to the mass murders, Johnson and Johnson, the maker of Tylenol, would step up offering a new bottle with safety features in an effort to prevent tampering, which included a cotton wad, foil seal, childproof cap, and a plastic strip. This new design would become industry standard, and a year later, Congress would enact a law making it a federal crime to tamper with packaged consumer products. But even with these changes, someone was tampering with the safety seal on the extra-strength Excedrin bottles and killing people, plural. On the Chicago murders, 1982, the FBI became involved in this case, which was kind of a copycat case uh, a few years after. 
And so the FBI kind of played a role and partnered closely with our U.S. Department of Agriculture as well as the, uh, the FDA. Because even though at the time of Sue's death, everyone was hoping and praying that her murder was an isolated incident, all hopes of that were dashed on June 18th, when police would receive a frantic phone call from a hysterical woman who said she'd been watching the wall-to-wall news coverage on the death of Sue Snow and the Excedrin recall. The woman who would identify herself as Stella Nichols was asked to calm down. She would tell police that she lived in Auburn and her husband Bruce Nichol had recently died on June 5th and that the ME had ruled that he'd passed away from natural causes which were attributed to his emphysema. But before her husband had collapsed to the floor, Stella said that he'd taken extra strength Excedrin and that she had the bottle in her hand right then and it had the same lot number that was being flashed on the TV news report. Stella Nichol would turn over two bottles of extra-strength Excedrin, and testing by the FDA would confirm the presence of cyanide in both. Toxicology tests on Bruce would also indicate that he had died from a lethal dose of cyanide. The following day, police would hold a press conference, confirming that another person, Bruce Nichol of Auburn, had died from cyanide poisoning from a bottle of extra-strength Excedrin. This terrifying revelation would prompt Bristol-Myers, the manufacturer of the extra-strength Excedrin capsules, would initiate a nationwide recall on the product, even though authorities were quick to point out that the cyanide poisoning up to that point had been limited to Auburn. But not long after, another tainted bottle would be identified, with that same lot number in a grocery store in the nearby city of Kent. Bristol-Myers and a group of drug companies would pull together to offer a $300,000 reward, which in today's money would be worth more than $800,000, to anyone coming forward with information that would lead to an arrest. Meantime, investigators began interviewing the Nickel family, trying to find any connections to the Snow family. From the beginning, Paul knew that he was a suspect, and he completely cooperated, willingly authorizing investigators to search his truck and personal vehicle. And when asked, he agreed to take a polygraph which he passed. Now that there was another known victim, Bruce, with seemingly no connection to Paul or Sue, and the fact that he'd passed a polygraph test and wasn't even home when Sue had taken that fatal dose, Paul would eventually be ruled out as a suspect. Investigators were also looking into the theory that Sue and Bruce's death were the work of a random killer with no particular victim in mind, just like in the Chicago Tylenol serial murders. That killer had never been caught. I mean, how do you determine a serial killer's motivation who poisons strangers? Investigators were so desperate for an investigative lifeline that they looked for answers from the previous work of the renowned FBI profiler John Douglas. Back in 1982, Special Agent Douglas had put together a paper on the profile on the Chicago Tylenol murderer. Who could they be looking for? And what would motivate a person to distribute cyanide-laced Tylenol to unknown, innocent victims? In his report, Douglas would say that lacing Tylenol with poison falls into the same category as indiscriminate bombings, sniping, which is when someone shoots a person from a hiding place, or the act of dropping a rock on a moving vehicle from an overpass. He described these crimes as gutless and cowardly. He believed this type of person was motivated by anger. This type of case is generally labeled as a motiveless homicide inasmuch as it does not fit into the mold 
of the more traditional types of homicide, where love, money, sex, etc. are the underlying motivational causes. And this could be true in the Chicago Tylenol murders. We still don't know. That case has never been solved. But as it relates to the Excedrin murders, as it would turn out, John Douglas was absolutely right that criminal profiling is to be utilized as an investigative tool only after all logical leads have been exhausted. Which is why, just as they had done with Paul and Sue, so they began to put the lives of Bruce and Stella Nickel under a microscope. Bruce was a heavy equipment operator, and Stella was a security screener at SeaTac Airport. The couple had met in 1974, and they'd gotten married two years later. At first, what they had in common was that they both loved to party and drink. But by 1986, Bruce had become burned out on booze. He gave up drinking altogether to enjoy a quiet life. He loved simple pleasures, like watching the birds fly over their rural property in Auburn, which is what he wanted to do on June 5th. When he came home with a massive headache, he would take a shower and ask his wife for some aspirin. And within 10 minutes, just like Sue, he'd collapsed on the living room floor. Investigators would speak to first responders who had rushed to Stella and Bruce's home after she'd called 911. And what they would describe was interesting. It had been just after 5 p.m. when Stella had called in saying that her husband had fallen to the floor. An ambulance had been sent out to their address. They remember driving down a dirt road in a heavily wooded rural area of Auburn. Their address wasn't clearly posted. And as they pulled up to the mobile home with their lights flashing, they were surprised that there wasn't anyone outside when they arrived because they wondered if they were even in the right place. A couple minutes later, the door would slowly open and a woman in her 40s wearing bright red lipstick, jeans, and big earrings would identify herself as Stella Nichols. They would follow her inside the residence where they found Bruce lying on his back in the living room. His eyes were fixed, his breathing labored, Stella would explain to the medics that Bruce had asked her to grab him a couple of extra-strength Excedrin, which he took, and then went to go watch the hawks on the deck outside. But not long after, he came in complaining of feeling lightheaded, and then crumpled to the floor. But here's the thing, as investigators were speaking to the first responders, by then everyone knew about the poisoning in the Excedrins. And while the medics at the time had felt like Stella was acting a bit subdued given the circumstances, but of course, they know everyone handles an emergency situation differently. But now looking back, in hindsight, they recalled that she'd mentioned Bruce taking Excedrin multiple times. And like Sue, first responders were stumped. They had no idea what they were dealing with as far as Bruce's symptoms were concerned. But they knew that if he had any chance at survival, he would need to be flown to Harborview. And it was odd because they felt like Stella seemed to be stalling when they first arrived, how she hadn't rushed out of the house, how it had taken her a couple of minutes to even open up the screen door. And when she did, she was holding a cup of coffee and she walked without urgency. It was like she was in slow motion when she brought them to Bruce. Investigators would also find out that after the medical examiner ruled Bruce's death as natural, given his history of emphysema, that Stella had argued with the doctors, telling them that his death wasn't natural that they'd gotten it wrong. When investigators asked Stella to take a polygraph, which they said was standard practice with a spouse, she would decline through her attorney, who would say that she was too upset to take the test. Which, of course, raised eyebrows, especially in conjunction with her story. It seemed suspicious, because she had turned over not just one bottle of tainted Excedrin, 
with the same lot number as Sue's, but two. And when she did, she told investigators that she had bought them at two separate times at two different locations. It would turn out that five bottles would be identified as tainted, and two of the five were from separate stores that Stella had just happened to go to? I mean, what were the odds? And as they dug deeper, more circumstantial evidence would come to the surface. Stella had taken out two life insurance policies on Bruce, one for 76000 and another one with a payout of 100000 if his death was ruled as accidental. A handwriting expert would take a look at those policies and rule that Bruce's signatures appeared to be forged. The FBI crime lab would also discover that the poison capsules had flecks of an unknown green substance. Additional analysis would reveal that that green substance was something used in home aquariums, a very specific product known as algae destroyer, which was used to kill algae in fish tanks. And detectives remembered that when they had interviewed Stella in her mobile home, they noticed that she had several fish tanks, prompting them to go interview retailers in the area that carried the algae destroyer product. Investigators would speak to a clerk who remembered Stella. She was hard to forget. I mean, one witness would describe her as, quote, a washed-up honky-tonk girl. That clerk would recall helping Stella with her fish tank needs, specifically explaining the need to crush the algae destroyer product in a bowl before putting it into the tank. Investigators' working theory, based on this witness, was that Stella had used the same container that she had crushed her algae destroyer in to later store the cyanide that she would use to put in the Excedrin capsules. In November of 1986, Stella would cave and consent to a polygraph test, which she failed. Investigators were certain that Stella was responsible for the cyanide poisoning of her husband and Sue, but they didn't have direct physical evidence linking Stella to the cyanide. Just a couple months later, investigators would catch a break. Stella's adult daughter from a previous relationship reached out to investigators. I'm sure the investigators working the case would say, you really can't put a price on how important Cynthia's information would be to law enforcement. But in terms of dollars and cents, you absolutely could. Remember, there was a $300,000 reward that had been offered by pharmaceutical companies for information that would lead to the arrest of the person responsible for the product tampering, which meant Cynthia had 300,000 reasons to rat on her mother. Cynthia would tell investigators that her mother had shared with her on numerous occasions that she wanted Bruce dead. She couldn't bear how boring and dull their lives had become because of him. Now that he'd gotten sober, he didn't like to drink and he didn't like to party. In Stella's estimation, he was a homebody. All he wanted to do was watch TV instead of getting loaded at the local bars with Stella, which is what she wanted to do. But 27-year-old Cynthia had more. She had information that had the potential to lead law enforcement to physical evidence that could tie her mother to the case. Stella would tell her daughter that she'd actually tried poisoning Bruce two times with foxglove, which is a flowering plant, but it didn't work, which is why she went to the library to do some research. And that's where she learned about cyanide. Investigators would visit the Auburn Public Library, And sure enough, under the library card in Stella's name, it was right there, how she checked out the title, Human Poisonings from Native and Cultivated Plants, Deadly Harvest, and Other Poison-Related Books. The FBI would dust specific pages 
on the books that she checked out that were related to cyanide poisoning, and that's where they found her fingerprints. I think maybe one of the reasons why I find this case, among many reasons, kind of compelling is it's a little bit of karma because Stella's own daughter ends up turning her in, you know, to get the insurance money. Do FBI cases often have these kinds of breaking into the case moments, you know, basically yeah, we, saying, here's my mom on a silver platter? Yeah, we, we do. Uh, you know, sometimes we have a, a scorned lover. We have a business partner. Uh, we have a, a disagreement amongst a group of of folks, uh, and and then there's usually somebody that um, is going to be the first to ring the bell uh, to kind of share the story of their cohorts, especially if they kind of get sideways with them. I find it interesting in this case uh, that the daughter, I'm not sure how long she waited, but she finally kind of uh, surfaced, and and the daughter's account kind of laid out the fact uh, of what the mom of what the mom did, and and she talked to uh, investigators, and and they went to the library and found the book, and. And they grabbed fingertips, which helped identify her. So, so that, 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 was, that was kind of the break in the case moment. But historically, when we're conducting investigations, we always want to interview and talk to as many people as possible, you know, bystanders, relatives, friends, others, because we're trying to develop the full picture of a potential subject as we're working an investigation. And so more often than not, it's going to be somebody close to the subject that has the firsthand knowledge that ends up cooperating with the U.S. government or um, for selfish intentions, um, they decide to lay the story out uh, and, and, you know, kind of rat on their rat on their team, if you will. A news release was issued on December 9, 1987, announcing the arrest of 44-year-old Stella Nickel who had been charged with five counts of federal tampering, two counts for the deaths of Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow, and the three other counts were for the product tampering of the other containers. Stella would proclaim her innocence, accusing her daughter of lying for the reward money. It was theorized that Stella had put cyanide in the Excedrin capsules, repackaged them, placed three bottles in stores, and kept two for herself at home to murder her husband that she'd been inspired by the Chicago Tylenol murders. And, and from my understanding, you know, an exhaustive investigation uh, of the agents at the time, you know, multiple agents, and they determined that Nichols' own wife, Stella, hoping to cash in on that life insurance policy of her husband's, had laced those capsules with the cyanide, with the cyanide and placed those additional bottles back in the store shelves randomly because she wanted to make it appear like it was a, a, a larger, you know, serial killer type uh, regional attempt. The jury found Stella guilty. And in May of 1988, she was sentenced to 99 years in prison. She was convicted of product tampering in this case, not murder, because it was the product tampering that had caused Bruce and Sue's deaths. However, at any time, the state could file murder charges against Stella Nickel. This would be the first conviction under the new federal product tampering law. Stella would become eligible for parole for the first time in 2017 when she was 73 years old. In June of 2022, a federal judge would deny her request for compassionate release due to her failing health. This case is mind-blowing because Stella most likely would have gotten away with murdering her husband. Remember, the ME had ruled his death as natural which meant she would have received that $76,000 in life insurance. But it wasn't enough. She wanted more. She knew that if he was killed by nefarious means, ergo being poisoned, she would get the $100,000 on the second insurance payout. And on top of that, the trifecta, 
Before her arrest, she'd already filed a lawsuit against the pharmaceutical company, no doubt hoping that there'd be a payout there too. Who would have thunk, right? I mean, it just doesn't seem like that much money that she would try to then do this whole elaborate plan to get the extra accidental insurance. Like, do you guys run into a lot of people who are like, you know, they would have gotten away with it, but they just couldn't help themselves? You know, I wouldn't say a lot. Carolyn, good question. Uh, I've been in law enforcement for 29 years and definitely on occasion, you know, people that we are investigating just can't help themselves and greed just, they're just overtaken by the greed or can I just squeeze a little more money out of this out of this drug transaction or, or this illegal activity that I'm doing. We see it on the white collar crime side of the house sometimes with, uh, with, with whether it's extortion or um, uh, some kind of a fraud case and maybe 100,000 is not enough and they think they can get 200,000 or whatever. So it's, it's ironic that sometimes greed uh, really drives the train for these folks and they just can't help themselves. Cynthia, Stella's daughter, would collect $250,000 of that $300,000 reward. But regardless of the motivation of Stella's daughter, the fact is, because of her information, they would ultimately be able to put her away. Well, I think it's important to note, like, you know, the tips.fbi.gov, the, the see something, say something uh, matter. There, there's lots of folks out there who have first or secondhand knowledge about a serious crime or uh, nefarious activity ongoing, but and they think they they think their piece of the pie is 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 is, is pretty uh, is not that big of a deal. But I would just encourage over reporting of, of information, or I just saw something that didn't seem right, or uh, because you know you never know. Um, and we have a tip line, and we can you can do it via email. You can go to our website, and sometimes uh, we get random. I don't know how many tens of thousands a day. I think we get with tips and our tip line from in, in West Virginia and then on our website. But many times those tips are very useful and helpful from the general public. We, we, there's many cases we would have never otherwise solved without the help of the, of the general public. I think that's important to note that. Before I let you go, I wanted to remind you to check out the bonus episode that's available right now on The Bitter Pill. Our bonus content is a place where my co-host Brandon Morgan and I discuss the case in more detail. And if you have a second, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. It really helps. And as always, thanks for listening. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.